Thank you, Amy. Well, good morning. Good to see you guys. Uh, good to be here this morning with you. Uh, for those of you that I'd, I've not had a chance to meet and you're new here with us, uh, my name is Kevin Harlan. I serve on the pastoral team here, and uh, it's great to be back here this morning with you. Um, for those of you that are new, let me just to fill you in just a little bit on where we've been. Uh, for the last 48 weeks, can you believe this is a 49th Sunday of 2013? We have been walking through the Bible in 2013, uh, both reading together and picking uh, certain passages uh, to uh, talk about, to look at on Sunday mornings together. Uh, three more to go. Uh, so you're kind of jumping in at the end of this, but it's okay. Uh, each of them have something to say to each of us, and I hope you'll find that to be uh, the case this morning. Uh, if you want to look at your text with, this, with me this morning, uh, you can turn to the book of James. Uh, you heard Amy read it for us this morning. Uh, it's a small book, uh, kind of near the end. If you're using the method of flipping and just hoping you see James in the top corner, you're probably not going to find it. So good moment for the table of contents. Um, and as you open it, you'll notice that this letter was uh, written uh, to a group of Jew- Jewish Christians right there in the very first line, uh, a group of Jewish Christians that have been spread, as James said, spread throughout the nations, most likely the nations that are most regional to Jerusalem. They have been scattered. Uh, you see James, who is writing, is the leader of the Jerusalem church. Uh, he's writing to these members, you might say, I, 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 this is the way I see it, the members of his congregation who have been persecuted and have had to flee, have had to leave Jerusalem, and have landed in cities throughout the area. It's most likely that this particular persecution that they've experienced that has caused the departure, has caused the scattering, is if you've been reading along in the book of Acts, when we read in Acts chapter 7 about the stoning of Stephen, it is most likely that they've scattered because of the persecution associated with Stephen's death. So James is sending this letter to be circulated among those believers, the people in his congregation, And he urges them on in their faith. Now, there are four individuals in the New Testament who are named James. And there has been debate over the years as to the author of this book. But the general consensus throughout church history, uh, starting with the early church fathers, is that this letter was written by James, the brother of Jesus. Or should we say, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, I know for some of you here this morning, this might be news to you, or you might just disagree with me that Jesus had a brother. If you come from a Catholic background, or you worship in the Catholic Church, and you find yourself here this morning, uh, you may know that Catholics and Protestants hold to a different view regarding James. Uh, Catholics believe that Mary remained a virgin after the birth of Jesus, which made it impossible for her to have other children. And as Catholics read passages that refer to James as the brother of Jesus or Jesus having brothers and sisters, uh, it's understood to them that these are cousins or close relatives. But I believe that if you look in the Bible, uh, we find that Jesus had other siblings. And James, who we are hearing from this morning, was one of Jesus' brothers. We see in Mark 6, for example, the first time that Jesus speaks in the synagogue in his hometown in Nazareth, The people look at him and they say, well, isn't that just Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph, the brother of Joseph and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Now, I know what you might think. 
you, you might think I'm just trying to pick a fight, but I just want to pause for a moment and be clear that since it's not the subject of the message this morning, I just want you to know where I'm coming from, how I'm going to approach this this morning. Because for me, it changes things to think that we are about to study and look at and what we heard read was written by somebody who likely shared a room growing up with Jesus. James intimately and experientially understands, understood the life that Jesus called us to live. And if you stop and think about it for a moment, if you had experienced what really could only be described as a family tragedy, the death of your older brother by death on a cruel Roman cross, an unjust death, wouldn't it bother you to find that people were claiming to be his followers and yet not living the way that he had instructed them to live? And in this passage we'll look at this morning, James asks and attempts to answer an important question of that time and I believe of our time today. Can a person claim to be a Christian and live any way he or she wants? Look with me again at verse 14. James poses this question in this way. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And in the verses to follow, James will declare this truth, Christians prove their faith. And he illustrates it with four responses. He will say that faith without works is ridiculous, it's useless, it's incomplete, And ultimately, faith without works is dead. So let's look at this first response to his own question as he begins to answer this rhetorical question that he's put out there, beginning in verse 15. He says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm, and be filled, without giving the things needed for their body, what good is that? You see, go in peace was a common Hebrew phrase that was sort of the mechanical farewell. When you would say goodbye to someone, it's kind of like you might say, see you later. You don't even think about it. It's just the way to say goodbye to someone. And James takes the familiar and twists it so that everyone would know how ridiculous this is. Here's the problem. I think it's difficult for us in South Kansas City today to to understand the weight of the context of what James is saying to his listeners and to picture what James paints. Let's try to do it, though. Hang with me here. Imagine you see someone in church out in the lobby this morning. You come after the service, you're leaving. They walk up to you. Maybe it's even someone in your community group, or if you're in student ministries, it's someone in your small group in student ministries, and they come up to talk to you. And James tells us to imagine them poorly clothed, actually to imagine them naked, but let's leave that part out, okay? (laughs) Let's just say they have on dirty shorts, they have a torn t-shirt, they're coming up to you, they look frazzled, something's not right. And as you talk to them, you hear this horrible story of what they've encountered in this past week. And you learn that they've lost everything. Their money. They have no food. They've lost all their clothes. 
and, and they tell you they haven't even eaten in three days. So you take that conversation in right out here, and after hearing this conversation, uh, you begin putting on your coat and gloves and scarf because it's really cold outside, and you say, I, I hope you find some clothes and food. I'll see you later. This is this picture that James is painting. And it's this is ridiculous. It almost seems unimaginable. And James is using this extreme case to build his case that it's not the thought that counts. Christ followers prove it. And in verse 18, he continues to lay out his argument. Look with me. He says, but someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Well, you do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? James very clearly is telling us that faith without works is not only ridiculous, it's useless. Now, early on in my Christian faith, I don't know if any of you uh, were with me on this, but early on in my Christian faith, I learned and was taught about James 2.19 and, and, and actually even memorized that, that you believe that God is one, you do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. And what I heard as it was explained was that James 2.19 showed that there was more than just an intellectual assent to becoming a Christian even the demons believed intellectually. And for those of you that were here last week, I just want you to know, I'm actually resisting the urge right now to do Reed's impersonation of Satan here on stage. Uh, it was actually the first time it, it ever happened here, is that someone impersonated Satan. If you missed it, you should just come on Sunday morning. I, it was, uh, I'm not going to do it again. It's not to be repeated. But when I learned this passage, James 2.19, I heard and, and I taught others that belief must move from the head to the heart. That's what I thought James 2.19 was saying. And that's not wrong. But as I now read James in its full context and have spent the week studying, what I see is that James is, not, is saying it's not just a matter of moving from the head to the heart. That true faith moves from the heart to the hands. German, Patrick, or German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer who died a martyr's death at the hand of the Nazis, coined a term that you may be familiar with. It's a term he uses to describe this call for a change of heart without a call for the change of hands. And he calls it cheap grace. In his biography, uh, which is a book that I would commend to you to read, it is absolutely fabulous, written by Eric Metaxas. And Eric tells of the likely source of Bonhoeffer's um, creation of this term of cheap grace. It was his mom. Metaxas wrote, Mere church-going had little charm for her. The concept of cheap grace that Dietrich would later make so famous might have had its origins in his mother. Perhaps not the term, but the idea behind it that faith without works is not faith at all, but a simple lack of obedience to God. During the rise of the Nazis, she respectfully but firmly prodded her son to make the church live out what it claimed to believe by speaking publicly against Hitler and the Nazis 
and taking actions against them. Works that would ultimately cost Dietrich his life. James is wanting us all to know, almost in a best-case scenario, if you will, that if we proclaim we are people of faith, and this faith does not change the way we live, our faith is useless. But unfortunately, some of us are okay with a useless face, a useless faith. I don't know that we're okay with a useless face. That would be, just thinking through the implications of that, uh, I won't share them with you either. So, um, It's not okay to have a useless faith. Look with me at uh, verse 21. James continues. He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, although there are several statements in here, including the last one that may cause us to pause and scratch our heads, uh, here's the truth that James is attempting to communicate and that faith without works is incomplete. And to illustrate this, James pulls out two of the most familiar stories to his listeners. The story of Abraham, and then in verse 25, the story of Rahab. Now, unfortunately for us here this morning, it's likely that those stories aren't as familiar with us as it would have been for the listeners. So James assumes they know what's going on there. So he doesn't elaborate a whole lot. But unfortunately, it's difficult for us to make sense of what's going on here. And in this case, the sequence of events is very important. Knowing how this, these two stories played out makes all the difference in how you interpret James. If we only take what James has written, it makes us think that it's sort of ordered like this, that Abraham offered Isaac on the altar, and then Abraham was declared righteous. Isn't that way, that's the way it reads? But James' readers would have known that this wasn't the order, because that's not what happened. In Genesis 15, 6, the Bible tells us that Abraham had faith and God declared him righteous. And 30 years passed. And then we come to Genesis 22 and Abraham responds in obedience to the sacrifice of Isaac and lays, offers Isaac on the altar. You see, in Genesis 15, Abraham was justified by God. In Genesis 22, he proved it. Now, before we go on, let's address, though, for just a moment, what might be an elephant in the room for some of you. I have a feeling you're thinking, well, didn't Paul say this? For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's not a gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. And because our culture loves to watch people fight, I mean, why else would The Housewives be such a, a big hit of a show? I've never seen it, by the way. Uh, Randy's just told me about it. And, uh, (Laughter) 
But we love to see people argue and fight. And so we pull sound bites. I mean, this is our whole political discourse, isn't it? We just pull sound bites out and put people against one another. Imagine the worst. And so we pull this one little sound bite out from James. A person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And pretty soon, we take what Paul has written and we think the two of them are duking it out here in Scripture. They're actually having like a little brawl as they write. But set in the bigger context, we know that James has just said that works completes faith. How we live is an outworking of genuine faith. How we live proves it. And Paul understood this. Man, I know you're familiar with Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Chances are you maybe even have tucked that away in your memory at some point. But do you know what Ephesians 2, 10 says? Probably not. For we are his workmanship, created in Jesus Christ Jesus for good works. This is Paul speaking. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And what does he mean by walk in them? That we should do them. In other words, Paul is saying we should prove it. And just in case you're not a big fan of Paul and James, and there's really only one person you really like to listen to, where do you think they got this idea? And by the way, you're in church. This is a good, safe place to say Jesus. Okay, this is... In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warned his listeners about the coming judgment. And he urged them not just to hear his words, but to do them. In John 14, 21, he was speaking to his disciples, preparing them for his coming crucifixion and his departure from them. And he says that whoever has my commandments and keeps them or does them, he's the one who loves me. And then he puts it in the negative. And he says that whoever does not love me does not do what I've commanded, does not keep my commandments. Jesus made it very clear that faith without works is incomplete. But it's not enough for James to know that it's ridiculous and it's useless and it's incomplete. Just in case there's anybody still wondering with his logic train here as he writes, he makes this very clear. He says in verse 26, for as apart from the body, apart from the spirit is, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And this isn't the first time James has made this statement in Verse 17 of chapter 2, he makes exactly the same statement. Faith without works is dead. And just in case you're curious, I did some work on this word dead this, this week. This word dead means one thing, dead. It is the word necrosis. It is the word where we get necrosis. It is, there's, in almost every use in the scripture, it's referring to a dead person. Jesus wants us to know that James wants us to know, and I think Jesus does as well, but James wants us to know that faith without works is dead. It has no life. It doesn't exist. It's no faith at all. So in light of James' argument, I think it brings us to a question for this morning is how are we to respond? How do we, in this context, in this day, in this place, at this time, prove our faith? Let me encourage you to think through two different frameworks. One, I think we need to think well and we need to work well. Let's begin with the think well. 
As you think through these two, faith and works, do you see the incompleteness of a deadness of faith without works? Or are you sort of uncomfortable with the two of them being connected? And if you find yourself with just a little discomfort, let me just pick at it for a moment and just ask, could it be that you're looking for the loophole? The loophole to continue living the selfish, me-centered life that you're living right now. You see, to believe that faith is more important than works leads to laziness. And we just float along in life, focusing on what makes us happy, what brings us satisfaction. And in so doing, we create the idol of self-gratification. Now, on the other side of the spectrum, believing works are more important than faith leads to legalism. And in our good works, we can become prideful, begin to think that we are better than others. And that also has an idol. It's the idol of self-justification. And so it must begin by thinking. We need to think well. But as I think James would say to each of us this morning, it can't stop there. We must also work well. But what do these works look like for us? As we conclude this morning, let me just suggest three things for each of us to consider as we seek to live out our faith. First is that our works should be included in every aspect of our lives. Our works should be included in every aspect of our lives. Now, James is not just talking about dropping a few dollars in the Salvation Army kettle during the holiday season. As good as that is, and as important as that is, that's not what James is saying. He's not just talking about doing good things in church here on Sunday morning, although it's no less than that. He's not talking about bringing cookies to your pastor. Well, actually, he might be. I didn't really study that one. Let me think that one. No, he's talking about every aspect of our life. Our faith should be visibly on display through our actions. In church, yes. How we serve, how we engage with others, how we make ourselves vulnerable and open to others, yes. It should be on display in our home. How we respond to our parents, how we treat our children, how we love our family, how we cherish our spouse. It should be on display in school, how we study, our hunger to learn, how we reach out to those in the school who might not be in our group. It should be on display in our neighborhoods in how we care for and extend hospitality to our neighbors, how we break the gossip chain of the neighborhood, how we eagerly seek to, to know others and to be known. And if you look at the word that James chooses for proof, it becomes especially clear that our faith should be on display in the workplace. The word he chooses for works also has the meaning of vocation. And our faith should be seen there in how we do our work, how we seek the good of the community at work, how we care for our coworkers, how we submit to authority, and yes, how we create jobs for the good of all. Our faith should be evident in every 
aspect of our life. Second, our works should include care for the poor. Let's not miss that in the first half of James 2, James is especially troubled by these Christ followers who are scattered, who are neglecting the poor and favoring the wealthy. This is what prompts this little statement of faith without works is dead. And James makes it very clear to us throughout his letter that our faith or lack of it is seen in how we care for those around us who are the most vulnerable. If you were with us at uh, our conference in the spring, CG 2013, and heard Andy Crouch, you might remember that Andy made a similar point when he said that the common good in a city, in an area, a common good is advanced when even the vulnerable among us are flourishing. So let me just ask, how is your faith at work for the good of the vulnerable? Do you know their needs? Do you know the needs of those who are in need in our community, in our city? How are you working to take care of those in need? Is your faith visible in this way? And finally, let me just say this, that I think our works should point to Jesus. Jesus told us, if you remember, that we should do our works in a way that others can see them. And as a result of that, it will bring glory to God. So are you doing your work in a way that points to Jesus? Are people noticing you or the God that you love and serve? Ultimately, our works should point to the one who proved it in ways that we never could. You see, God loved us and he proved it by sending his son. A baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. This baby grew up and proved his deity before us by his miracles and his perfection in living. And while we were helpless, with no hope for rescue, he proved his love for each of us by choosing to die a cruel death on a Roman cross. Now, maybe you're here this morning and curious if this is really true. I mean, you know the Christmas story, you're familiar with it, but you might be a little skeptical. Skeptical that it really happened. And when it comes to the Easter thing, the the whole resurrection reality, that's a really long stretch for you. Maybe you're here because your parents made you be here, or maybe it's because... You're honoring a spouse by attending or for whatever reason you find yourself here this morning and you're just not sure that you buy it. Well, let me suggest that James, the brother of Jesus, may be the strongest evidence of the deity and the resurrection of Jesus. You see, James wasn't one of the original disciples. He came on later, came on the scene later as a church leader. And just think about this for a moment. What would your brother have to do to convince you he was the long-awaited Messiah? I think it would take physical resurrection. And history tells us 
that James served faithfully as a church leader from that point on into his 60s before he too was stoned to death for his faith. I don't think a younger brother would would hang on for that long unless he believed and he knew that Jesus was the Messiah, the one who could be trusted, the one who calls us to a different way of living, the one who calls each of us to prove it. Let's pray. Lord, we pause together this morning to recognize our failures, individually, collectively, our failures in living out the faith that we profess. Lord, so often our words of profession are are so hollow. Forgive us for our laziness and our worship of the idol of self-gratification. Lord, convict us of our failings and give us clarity in how you want us to live out our faith. Lord, forgive us for our legalism, our worship of the idol of self-justification. We know that you and only you can bring life. Lord, we place our hope and trust in you and in you alone. There's nothing we can do to earn or deserve it. Most of all, Father, we thank you for the way you sacrificially proved your love for us by sending your son to earth to live the life that we were meant to live, to die the death that we deserved, and to overcome it so that we can live. We stand in awe and worship. In Christ's name we pray.